Sifter for the ear. News, interviews, reviews, cinema, TV, streaming. Action. Hi, y'all. This is Jerry Williams, a.k.a. TV Jerry. The Big Lebirdsky is a celebration of all things related to the Coen Brothers' 1998 classic movie, including a costume contest, trivia, a bathrobe bar crawl, and, oh yes, a screening of the movie. It takes place Saturday, November 5th at The Bird, obviously. I'm sure there'll be lots of folks in bathrobes. By the way, I'm posting this early because this is my last show until November, going on vacation. Who are you going to call? Huh? Who are you going to call? Immigration. For what? For you. Why? Because you're not legal. Don't you, don't you worry, darling. Don't you know I'll be there. If you're a boomer, you may recognize that song by Jerry and the Pacemakers from 1965. Imagine my surprise when this was used as the opening song for the new documentary, Sometime Somewhere, written and directed by today's guest, Ricardo Preve. He's an Argentine filmmaker, photographer, and activist who's immigrated to Charlottesville in his youth, and he tells that amazing story, too. Rick has produced more than 30 films, and his latest doc is personal because it looks at the continuing struggle of Latinx immigrants in his Virginia home. And it premieres at this year's Virginia Film Festival, which runs from October 25th through 29th. Sifter Review of the Week Flora and Son on Apple TV+. Plus. In this unlikely tale, a woman without any previous training turns into an accomplished musician in just a few philosophy-filled lessons. Eve Hewson, daughter of Bono, plays a single mom whose 14-year-old son keeps getting into trouble. She decides to buy a guitar and learn to play it, which introduces an alluring teacher from L.A., Joseph Gordon-Levitt. Thus begins their long-distance relationship, which involves more discussions about music than it does practical instruction. Hewson does okay, despite her continual glower, while Gordon-Levitt brings his usual charismatic charm. John Carney, director of Wants and Sing Street, is the writer-director here, so expectations for a musical treat were high. Although there are some pleasant tunes, this film is more about the struggling relationship between the mother and son, but it's mostly surface. There are charming moments, but the pace drags and the empowerment discussions slow it even more. I gave Flora and Son two and a half out of five stars. Rick Preve, welcome to Sifter. Thank you so much, Jerry. Such a privilege and an honor to be on this podcast with a guy who skipped his senior prom in high school to see Blow Up by Michelangelo Antonioni. So any guy who does that is a friend of mine. Wow, cool. You did a little research. Bless your heart. That's great. Yeah, yeah, definitely was into movies early on. I tell you what, it just blew my mind at the top of the movie. Jerry and the Pacemakers, I'll be there. Yeah. Because <laughs> I go back to those days, you know, I was a DJ back in college, and I'm like, where does he have Jerry and the Pacemakers on a documentary about migration and immigration? Where did that come from? Right. I was attracted to the text that says, you know, it'd be all right. And the fact that they are talking about all your dreams will come true. If not, I'll be there. So I wanted to have it as a contrast to the opening clips where we see uh, migrant subject to, you know, pretty rough treatment. 
And then I sort of like the idea of soothing and changing that mood with a song that follows. It's interesting. It was an interesting approach for that, I'm sure. So you've had a prolific career. You've done documentaries, narratives. You worked for National Geo. But your background, you went to VPI of all places in agricultural yeah. engineering, and you have a master's in forestry. First of all, you're from Argentina, right? That's correct. I'm from Argentina, but as the movie sometimes somewhere shows, I have been around Charlottesville since 1977. I like to say I've been around since Thomas Jefferson was still alive, but not everybody <laughs> believes that. So how did you end up in Charlottesville to start with? Well, I ran away from home when I was 19. I was a very rebellious kid. And with five other kids, we crossed the South Atlantic on a small sailboat from Argentina to South Africa. We turned over twice. We lost the rudder, the sails, the radio, wow. the engine, the food. Uh, and then on other sailboats, I arrived in Fort Lauderdale in your, I believe you're from Florida. Yeah, born and raised. I arrived there with no money. I didn't really speak any English. My dad had revoked my passport as a punishment. Wow. So I didn't have a passport and a visa, but I knew I had some relatives in Charlottesville. My mom's family had run away from Hungary during the end of World War II from the Russians. So they in turn were refugees. And I got a bus and went to Charlottesville, and the rest is history, like they say. Wow, wow. Well, there's a movie right there you haven't made yet, Rick. <laughs> yeah, possibly. So what made you want to switch from engineering and forestry to suddenly you're making movies? Being laid off, I had returned <laughs> to Argentina in the mid-90s. We went back with my family, and I was the CEO of an American company in Argentina. The company is called International Paper. And one day they decided to leave Argentina and they fired me and about 1,200 people used to work for me. But I have a friend who's an Argentine film director and I went to see him and he asked me, you know, what are you doing? I said, nothing. I'm kind of depressed because I've been fired. Right. What are you doing? He told me he was doing a science fiction movie about Argentina's first space mission to the moon. And he said, do you want to help me? And I said, sure. So I started in 2001 on this. Wow. Now, let me ask you this before we talk about sometime, somewhere, Latino, Latinx, or Hispanic, do you have a preference or how do you feel about those different Look, phrases? Um, in my film, we don't have any Portuguese speakers. We don't have any Brazilians. So technically speaking, it will be about Hispanics. Now, Latinos or Latinx refers to all the people of Latin American origin. So it would also include people I don't know, like in Haiti, who speak French or in French Guyana, of right. course, in Brazil. So I use Hispanic and Latino interchangeably. Right. Yeah, most people do. Now, you've produced a lot of documentaries. I did my research, too, and went and looked through some of those. What makes Sometimes Somewhere unique and special? Why did you want to do this one? Well, this is very personal. I've worked a lot in Africa and the Middle East. I've done archaeology, anthropology, you know, looking for submarines in the Red Sea. Those are very uh, passionate and wonderful things, but they don't really have anything to do with me or very little. Uh -huh. Instead, sometimes somewhere is special for me because I was struck about the change in attitude between when I arrived in 1977, when there were practically no Latinos in Charlottesville. And, you know, I was received with open arms to how this country has hardened particularly after September 11, particularly in the last five years or so, in which there is this really sometimes aggressive behavior towards foreigners or people who are different. Right. And so I, um, I thought it was worthwhile 
to look at this. And I decided just like, you know, in the summer, I teach film at a place called Lighthouse Studio in Charlottesville. And uh, to my students, when they ask me for a subject, what should they make a documentary about? I tell them, just walk out the door of your house and do a documentary about some place or somewhere that you know about. And so for me, talking about being a migrant in Charlottesville, I felt it was a subject that was strongly qualified to talk about. That's where the origin of the film is. Uh-huh. Right, right. Makes sense. And that is you standing in the middle of the river in a suit, right? Yes. And, you know, that scene was completely unplanned. We were going to do some shots, uh, you know, we call them beauty shots, establishing shots in the right. river. And we were just goofing around. And I decided to walk into the river because it was kind of <laughs> hot. It was in August. And we filmed it and it stayed. It was a completely unplanned thing. Yeah, it's an interesting image in the film, for sure. Now, speaking about images, Grapes of Wrath obviously plays a part in the movie in several ways. There's the painting on the wall and the, yes. where a lot of the interviews are done and their references to the film. Is that why you shot in black and white? You know, the story about why I shot in black and white is uh, we generally have a first meeting with my longtime collaborators. And I announced to the team that the next movie was going to be in black and white. And there was a few seconds of stunned silence. <laughs> and then everybody said, OK, well, we'll shoot it in black and white. So I've been preparing for this question, Jerry, and you're the first person to ask me. So there are really three, three answers to that. For one thing, I wanted to strip the aesthetics of the film from all the pretty things you know right. in Charlottesville we have the Blue Ridge Mountains with the full foliage the green of the UVA lawn the red brick of Monticello and I wanted to be as far away from a Chamber of Commerce video as I could <laughs> I also felt in the second place that filming in black and white and particularly having some sharp angles a lot of things in Charlottesville have curves the dome of the rotunda, right. you know, even the mountains are uh, smooth curves. And the serpentine walls. The serpentine walls, exactly. Right. So I wanted to have some sharp um, angles and some starkness to it, because in Charlottesville for a long time, we run the story that we are the ideal American town. And we have some hard edges to us. And I felt that the black and white photography would force people to listen to what these people are saying without being distracted by a beautiful golden sunset or whatever. Uh -huh. And the third reason is because I'm a huge admirer of the French New Wave and Italian realism cinema. And I've always dreamed of having a film in black and white. Uh -huh. I said, I'm going to do this one in black and white. You're eight and a half. Yes, exactly. So how did Grapes of Wrath, since that wasn't the influence, why did you choose Grapes of Wrath as right. something to revolve around? You know, my kids uh, all went to um, Albemarle County high schools primarily. And, you know, the Grapes of Wrath is required reading uh, in high school most sure. of the time. And so uh, the novel and so is the film very popular. And I was struck about a hypocrisy or an incongruency. How can it be that the Jode family, the main characters in the film, who left Oklahoma along with millions of other farmers of the U.S. Midwest in the 1930s, from what was essentially an impact of climate change, the Dust Bowls, right. and to escape poverty and under very difficult conditions, made it to California, where they were mistreated and told they were criminals and they were lowering the real estate values, why do we hail them as heroes while people today 
who are coming from Latin America are often referred to as villains. I don't buy the argument that, well, it's a migration within the United States. As a, you know, when it comes to humans and survival, I really feel that there were many parallels and I wanted to bring them out in the film. And it's interesting because you started basically interviewing immigrants, but slowly you expanded the argument and the story to talk about the Irish immigrants, talk about children, even torture. And that shackle story was pretty incredible. Right. Well, I think there is a wide range of experiences that our migrants have gone through. And I didn't even put the worst ones. And you notice that I did not actually use any footage or anything graphic right. because I really, well, for example, among the American uh, filmmakers, documentarians I admire the most is Errol Morris, who, you know, did Thin Blue Line right. uh, and, and, uh, and he used the interview style and and it was powerful. I'm, I'm not as good a filmmaker as he is, but I, I was very moved by the way he worked interviews to give them a power that went beyond the images, which is hard to do in film. Footnote. Errol Morris directed such classic documentaries as The Thin Blue Line, Fast, Cheap, and Out of Control, and The Fog of War. And he uses a special system he named the Interatron that puts his face in front of the camera. So the person being interviewed is actually looking at him. You can see Rick getting into position at the very beginning of the documentary. And so I wanted both migrants, but also people who work with them, an idea of the very broad range of experiences. Now, you know, it's interesting. I didn't even know this until I watched the movie. I didn't realize that it's legal for people who are not citizens to drive in Virginia. Right. And it's only one of few states. Uh, here in Florida, for example, it is not. And it is an issue that goes perhaps to the larger issue, which is there are somewhere between 13 and 15 million undocumented migrants in this country. Most of them work. Most of them get Social Security deducted from their paycheck. And because they don't have a Social Security number, somebody, not the U.S. government, is pocketing that money and that's hurting you and me and the people who pay our taxes. Right. So this is part of that concept of we don't want you here, but we do want you here. Just keep your mouth shut and keep your gaze down and do the job. But we're not going to let you have a driver's license, but we are going to expect you to make it to work on time, which here in Miami, maybe or in New York, you have public transportation, but let's face it, in Charlottesville, it will be impossible. So there are a number of these conflicts or incongruences that were shooting ourselves in the foot. And I'm glad that Virginia was able to at least resolve the issue of the driver's license. Right, right. That's great. Now, there's one interesting, I call it a poetic interlude from a child's point of view in the movie. Where did that come from? It came from some restrictions. Children who are incarcerated by the United States government, minors, you're not allowed to disclose their identities. You're not allowed to disclose the location of the jail. So this wonderful guy, Seth Michelson, who uh, was the poet and professor at Washington and Lee University, who uh, teaches these kids in their jails, in maximum security prisons, poetry. You know, we couldn't film those kids. We couldn't identified him. We could not even record them. We couldn't film in the jail. So we decided, how do we go about as filmmakers who have to show with images what's going on in a poem? And I don't want to throw in a spoiler, but right. we did think of a way 
to show this without showing the kids and the actual location where they're detained. Very good. Well, you're in Miami right now, but you'll be back up here for the festival, won't you? Oh, no, yes. I come back on Tuesday. I'm just doing podcasts and interviews with the media here to prepare for a screening we'll have here later this year. Aha. Uh-huh. Okay. Well, speaking of Charlottesville, we have somebody who wanted to drop in and say hello. Surprise guest drop in. Do you know who John Kelly is? How could I not know the biggest media personality in my hometown? Hey, John. (laughs) Hi, John. Thanks for joining us. Absolutely, Jerry. Hi, Rick. How are you? Hey, good. Down there enjoying Miami. He's got a little bit better weather than we do right now. Yes, he does. Footnote. John Kelly is a Charlottesville-based publicist and writer who's worked with the Virginia Film Festival since 2005. So, John, the announcement has just come out for the festival, and there's lots of amazing movies and amazing guests coming out. What are some of the highlights of this year's festival? Besides, of course, this film. Yeah, it's hard to even know where to start, Jerry. I mean, we were, we were opening with Maestro. You know, right. Bradley Cooper wrote, directed, and stars in a biopic of Leonard Bernstein, and specifically uh, his relationship with his wife, who is brilliantly played by Carrie Mulligan. And his nose. Yeah, on our closing night, we have a documentary called American Symphony, uh, which is about John Batiste. Footnote. John Batiste is a singer and songwriter, best known as the band leader for The Late Show with Stephen Colbert. Ostensibly, it was going to be about him writing this full American symphony, but in the midst of it, he learns that his wife has had a recurrence of a serious leukemia, and it becomes about both those things and about creating in a real world situation of great worry. And it, you know, it's it's a very very powerful documentary, and we are thrilled to welcome John Batiste to the Paramount stage on that Sunday night. That'd be great. Is he going to perform at all, or just talk? He is. He's going to talk, and he's going to perform. Wonderful. Wonderful. Short performance. Yep. And we have American Fiction, which is, you know, just won the People's Choice Awards at Toronto, which is, as you know, is a often a bellwether for the Oscar race. Um, and that is with Cord Jefferson, who's the director. People know him as a writer from Succession and Watchmen and all these things. But right. he is going to be with us that night. And we're, we're thrilled with that. And then we have Ava DuVernay coming in with Origin, which is her latest Great. Uh, film. And it is about the, the process of Isabel Wilkerson's writing her, her book, Cast. And it's it's really a powerful movie, and we've wanted to have Ava in for a long time. So it's really, really exciting for us. You obviously already know Rick, don't you, John? I sure do. I've known Rick for many, many years. How is he in Charlottesville? What kind of reputation does he have up there? <laughs> oh, my gosh. Well, uh, <laughs> this is being recorded. Is that right? <laughs> no, not at all. Not at all. <laughs> Rick has an incredible reputation as a filmmaker in in Charlottesville and has taken his stories around the world. You know, we have been lucky enough to have his films many, many times. And now here's another opportunity for us to show this very, very important film about an issue that affects everyone and and through a lens of Charlottesville. That's great. And I will say also, we're delighted to be able to honor Rick this year with our Governor Gerard Belial's Founders Award, which goes to someone who has done great things for Virginia film and and in this case for the festival, in addition to showing so many films with us, has been a board member in the past and has been a tremendous supporter and cheerleader for the festival through the industry, I'm sure. That's great. Is there anything else you want to mention about the festival before we get back to uh, talking about Rick's movie? Sure. Just that uh, tickets go on sale to the public next Friday, October 6th, and that the entire program is now available online at virginiafilmfestival.org. Right. And I'll have a link on the webpage for the show too. That's great. All right, John, I want to thank you so much for dropping in. Thank you. Take care, guys. Thank you, John. Thank you so much. So let's move back to the movie a little bit. You also made this in memory of your parents. Yes. 
and why this movie as opposed to your many others? You know, I've had quite a few years of losses. Some expected, like my mom in 2018 and my father in 2021. And then I had my daughter, Erica, passed away in 2017 at the oh, age of 29. Oh. I had already dedicated one of my films coming home to her at the end. In this one, that is also a dedication to her, but that only a few people who know me would know what it means. So I felt it was time to honor my parents who had recently passed away. And I don't know, just uh, an inspiration. And I put their name at the end. And speaking of the end, the closing song is by the Science Choir. What is that? Right. Um, in Argentina, there are you know, national public universities. The public university in the city of Córdoba, which is, uh, I think it may be Argentina's oldest city or one of the oldest cities, you know, 16th century, has a tradition of the arts. Although this is a group of people who sing in the School of Mathematics, Physics, and Exact Sciences. Wow. And they recorded this mass in Spanish. Uh, it's a mass based on uh, local folklore. And I just love the, the voices and the music. And I said, let's put it in the closing titles. Wow. It was beautiful. Yeah, it was just interesting that it said science choir. I thought that was kind of right, unique. Right, right. And, <laughs> and it just shows you that people who are graduate students, professors, they get together and they sing. And I, and I felt what a wonderful thing to recognize them in a film as opposed to, you know, composing or hiring somebody to do it. Uh, so we got in touch with them and they, you know, we, we paid some money for the rights and that, but we got them some relevance as well. That's great. So what was the biggest challenge in putting this documentary together? You know, I knew you would ask that because a lot of <laughs> journalists ask that. And I Oh, usually never mind. Have... Then I won't <laughs> ask it. <laughs> no, go now, ahead. Here's the story because I generally have huge problems. I cannot recall a documentary I made that went as smoothly as this. Not the least of the reasons is because I got to go home and sleep at home every night, you know, <laughs> uh, as opposed to working in Kyrgyzstan or in Chad or in Peru or whatever. Right. Um, I would say there was some, as I mentioned before, some concern from people at the beginning about why we were doing this and who we were. But fortunately, I could count on the fact that I had done a documentary at the beginning of the 2000s called Chagas, a hidden affliction about an illness that affects the Latino community. And I had filmed a part of it in Charlottesville. So I already had a relationship with those organizations like the Church of the Incarnation and Sin Barreras that allowed me to overcome that initial reluctance of people to be interviewed. The title Sometimes Somewhere, where did that come from? Well, we felt that it reflected a reality of migrants, which is when you leave Venezuela or Guatemala or Brazil on foot and you're facing walking thousands of miles across dangerous places and many borders, you don't know when you're going to arrive at your destination and you also don't know where you're going to arrive. So sometime you're going to arrive somewhere. So we felt those two words encapsulated the essence of the film. We also considered a couple other titles. One was Meet Your Neighbors or Meet the Neighbors. Wow, interesting. Because often when people talk about immigration, they think of it as a problem in Texas, in California and Arizona. Right. And many people don't realize we have a huge migrant community 
in Virginia that gets up every morning and cooks the food and mows the lawn and builds the buildings. Right. And another title we had considered was hypocrisy because there's a, a double discourse. On the one hand, we're saying we don't want you here. On the other hand, we know that if they wouldn't be here, those jobs wouldn't get done. But we settled on sometimes somewhere based on the the thought that it was a brief way to tell the migrant experience. Now, I know that you are down in Miami right now, but when you get a chance to break, maybe sitting in that hotel room after you finished all your interviews today, what do you like to watch? I like to watch old films. I just came back from two weeks in Japan, so oh, wow. I really watched a lot of Ozu and Kurosawa film. But I also love Japanese noir. They are so outrageously funny. And there's so much shooting and blood and right. cars exploding that I've been watching a lot of Japanese films. I watched almost every Italian film made from 1945 to the mid-60s. Wow. You know, I went to Rome, uh, I think it was in June, to the place where Pier Paolo Pasolini the great Italian right. artist and director was murdered, and I and I went there to pay tribute to him. So I'm, I'm kind of a, uh, what is the expression, oldies but goldies kind of guy when it comes to cinema. Well, Rick, I want to thank you so much. This has been fascinating. You've done your research, which is very impressive. Thank you for being so well prepared and so entertaining. Thank you. I you know I try to be because if you take the time to interview me. The least I can do as a guest is 15 minutes of research. Thank you so much. Have a good time down in Miami. Bye-bye. Thank you. Bye-bye. See you later. That was Ricardo Preve, writer-director of the new documentary, Sometime Somewhere, which looks at the continuing struggles of Latinx immigrants in his Virginia home of Charlottesville. And it premieres at this year's Virginia Film Festival, which runs from October 25th through 29th. And there's a link to the festival and Rick's website on the webpage for this show at tvjerry.com. Coming soon, in theaters. The Exorcist Believer. The two producers who relaunched the Halloween franchise are taking on this earlier classic, which does feature Ellen Burstyn returning. The Royal Hotel. Julia Garner and Jessica Henwick head to Australia, where they get a job at a pub, and then things go dark. Shelter in Solitude. A death row prisoner with 10 days to live forms a bond with a country singer turned prison guard. When Evil Lurks. This thriller from Argentina revolves around a man infected with demons. She Came to Me. Peter Dinklage plays a composer who has writer's block and gets involved in a one-night stand, also starring Anne Hathaway and Marisa Tomei. Mad, a new comedy import from India set in an engineering college with dancing and more. TV and streaming. Loki on Disney+. Plus. Tom Hiddleston returns as the Marvel mischief maker. Our Flag Means Death on Max, season two of this pirate comedy. Totally Killer on Prime, 35 years after the murder of three teens, the killer returns on Halloween for a new victim, and this movie is not a part of the Halloween series. Haunted Mansion on Disney, the movie of the ride is now streaming. Pet Cemetery Bloodlines on Paramount Plus, this is a prequel to the 2019 remake about Stephen King's Scary Graveyard. Fair Play on Netflix. Alden Ehrenreich and Phoebe Dynavore star in this romantic thriller set in the world of finance. You can subscribe to this podcast on all the usual platforms, or you can visit TV Jerry, click on the podcast tab, and there's a link. I'm off to vacation, so the next new show will drop on Wednesday, November 1st, and it's a look at yet another festival, The Magic of Horror. This is Jerry Williams. Thanks for listening. For more sister, including literally thousands, thousands of, of reviews, reviews, visit tvjerry.com.